Bob Hartman and Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. Give them another round of applause. <laughs> now, I do have to tell you that um, there is a black Citroen Picasso that, and who, uh, whose registration number is WN02NGO. WN02NGO, a black Citroen Picasso and it needs to be moved from where it is immediately uh, um, because it's just right in the way of some really important things that we need to, uh, our team need to do for tomorrow morning. So if that's your car, if you um, sneak your way away in just a moment, and we won't all watch, okay? <laughs> I promise. Three quarters of us, but not all of us. Great. Um, are you enjoying yourselves? <laughs> it's great to party. I don't think I've ever preached dressed quite like this before. But um, you see, I'm a Baptist. I've been a Baptist for a long time. And when I was a kid, I learned Baptist doctrine and theology and things like that. And the most important thing I ever learned, I was telling a few people last night at uh, something I was, uh, a little show I was doing, I learned when I was about 10 or 11, I learned this rhyme. I was taught it by Andrew Dowwood, my Sunday school teacher. He was taught it with all my friends in the boys' class of our three o'clock Sunday school lesson. And I was taught it when I was 10. I'm 52 years old and I still haven't forgotten it. I can't forget it. And when I tell it to you, you'll never be able to forget it. But it sums up all things Baptist. It goes like this. We were taught, uh, we were taught this rhyme. It went, and we used to say it each week. We don't dance, we won't chew, and we won't go with girls who do. There you go. We don't dance, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. It summed up Baptist life. The truth is, of course, we'd have gone with any girl who cared to show up, but none of them ever did, because it was just a boys', a boys class. Actually, there is a definition of Baptist. It's the true definition of Baptist. Baptists are people who are afraid that there is someone out there somewhere who's having fun. <laughs> when I left theological college, Cornelia and my wife, we went to Tunbridge in Kent. To, uh, thank you very much. And we worked for Tunbridge Baptist Church. Tunbridge Baptist Church, in 1981 when we went there, was a very large church. Tunbridge is just outside the M25. It's in Britain's Bible Belt, really. It was, um, and on any Sunday morning, there'd be 800 adults or perhaps more. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before because it is one of the most shaping stories of my entire life. Um, and uh, I rocked up at this church. I was the assistant to the minister. And every Sunday, I used to assist him in taking the service. His name, rather unfortunate for a Baptist, because as I say, we were against everything. And Tunbridge was into total abstinence of every sort, including the dreaded alcohol, the devil's urine, as I called it earlier. The point is that every Sunday, David Beer, the senior minister... <laughs> It's obviously true. Some of you, I'm sure some of you know David. He was, he is still called, I say he was, he's still called, he's retired now, but he is called David Beer. Rather unfortunate name for a Baptist. 
Every Sunday, David Beer would preach the sermon and I would assist him, which meant I would get to do the offertory, read, uh, the offertory prayer and the reading. And every Monday uh, morning, David was very influenced by the States. He'd been and he'd worked in the United States and, and ran the church a little bit like that. So he had a big office and I'd go in at 11 o'clock on a Monday morning and I'd sit down. He'd sit behind his desk. I'd sit there. David's a great person, actually. I owe him so much. He is my good friend. And I'd sit there and he'd say, now, let me see. How did we get on last Sunday, yesterday? How did we do? He said, now, let me see. Um, how was the preaching? It was pretty good. Who did it? Oh, it was me. <laughs> and uh, you did a pretty good job, although you could improve on the reading and the offertory prayer. So let's think about next Sunday. I think, uh, all things considered, I should preach and you should do the reading. <laughs> and then the next Monday, it would happen the same again. It went month after month after month. I'd just sit there and David would always say, oh, well, I think I should just preach and you should do the offertory prayer. I'm a good, very good offertory prayer. If you ever need one in your church, I can visit and offer the most exquisite offertory prayer on your behalf. Anyway, one Sunday, I've been there about six months. It's honestly true. I've been there six months. And David calls me into his office, 11 o'clock. He used to ring me because we had offices and he used to ring through. I used to go through. I sat there and he said, Steve, he said, you've been doing very well. He said, next Sunday, we're beginning a new sermon series. And it's on the seven signs, seven miracles, as you know. There are only seven miracles in John's Gospel, as I'm sure you picked up through this week. It's on the seven signs in John's Gospel. We're going to be doing a seven-week series on the seven signs, David said to me. And he said, and I think you're doing very well. And I think, Steve, you're ready to preach. You are going to preach the first sermon on the first sign in John's Gospel next Sunday. I will do the offertory prayer and the reading. I went home. We used to go home for lunch because we lived very close. And I went home for lunch. I ran home. I got home. Cornelia, my wife's there. We used to have sandwiches for lunch. I said to, I said to Connie, as I walked through the door, I walked in the door. I walked into our kitchen. And she, there she was stood. And I remember I said, you, Cornelia, are married too. Next Sunday morning's preacher. Ha! Oh, yes, I said, Tunbridge Baptist Church. It was a huge church, as I say, you know, huge church. I said, I am the preacher for next Sunday morning. She said, what are you going to preach on? I said, ha, ha. I said, you know, always try to impress your wife. I said, next Sunday morning, we're starting a new sermon series, and I am going to be preaching on the first sign in John's Gospel. You know, there are only seven signs in John's Gospel, and I am preaching on the first one. She said... What is the first sign in John's Gospel? <laughs> that was a remarkably deep question. <laughs> I said, I don't know right now. But it doesn't matter. I've got until Sunday to research. So after lunch, I ran upstairs. I used to have this little study in a little box bedroom we had. And I sat there and I researched, which really meant start reading John's Gospel until you get to a miracle. That's normally what your minister means when he says, I've been doing a little bit of reading. <laughs> and right there at the start of chapter 2 of John's Gospel is this story. When Jesus goes to Cana in Galilee 
and uh, he shows up the wedding with his mum and with, and with his disciples. They'd been invited to the wedding. And when they got there, all the wine was gone. And his mother points out to him, Jesus, they've got no more wine. Uh, they got no wine because the story goes on to explain they drunk it all. They drunk too much. They'd had too much to drink. So I sat there and um, I thought about this sermon. And that Sunday morning, I showed up at Tunbridge Baptist Church and David Beer read the reading and he did the offertory prayer, read the reading. And straight after he'd read the reading, I stepped forward to this big, we used to have this big kind of stage thing and loads of people sitting out there and, and risers as well. And, I, and I, I stood up and I said, I said, I come this morning to address you on the subject of the first sign in John's gospel. Jesus turns water into alcohol. Even as I said it, they shivered. <laughs> they knew Jesus had turned the water into alcohol, but they wished he hadn't. And they'd been trying to find ways of changing it back for 2,000 years. <laughs> Ian and I have just found a way on the stage here. Unfortunately, it involves drinking it first. But they are... <laughs> But it's bona fide, it works. <laughs> anyway, so I said, and so I said, here is Jesus. Jesus steps onto the stage of history. Jesus steps into a Galilee where people live under a, the oppression of the Romans. Where people are isolated and lonely and forgotten. Where women are put down by men. Where the Jews are put down by Romans. Where there's an oppressive religious regime that blocks heaven to the poor. Where people are cut out of God's kingdom and told they're sinners and written off. Where there is no hope for so many people. A society saturated with sin and oppression. A society saturated with illness and disease. And into this world of illness and disease and sin and oppression and injustice and lack of compassion and lack of mercy and lack of hope. What is it that Jesus does first? He goes to a party for some people who've had too much to drink. And he makes, by my calculations, about a thousand bottles of reds. So I said, I thought about this great passage. I thought about its meaning. I've explored the text. And I've come to the conclusion that this miracle has only one meaning. Jesus wanted to announce to these people, the drinks are on me. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. But I tell you, that is not the way they responded in Tunbridge Baptist Church on that morning. I tried so hard, there was a deathly silence. I mean, a death, you know that kind of silence, don't you? I've, it was my big lie. The drinks are on me. The drinks are on the kingdom of God. No one moved. They just sat there. I mean, I could see them sweating. Do you know? And I whimpered on, you know, and I dribbled on and it got worse and worse. You know those talks and once you lost it, you lost it. I dribbled on and then I stopped and then they sang a hymn and that was the end. And then the oldest deacon in the church came up to me at the end of the service. After the last hymn and the closing prayer, he came up to me. And this is honestly true again. You couldn't make this up. He was, he was in his mid-80s. He was a great guy actually. But the oldest deacon came up to me with a stern face. Deacons are big shots in Baptist churches. His name was Harry Cork. That's true. <laughs> 
It's honestly true. It's honestly true. David Beer will tell you that. If David, you ever listen to this tape, David will confirm. His name was Harry Cork. He's, he's long since um, departed this life. But um, Harry came up to me and he looked at me and said, Young man, he said, you won't get far in this church or this denomination if you insist on preaching sermons like that. I said, Harry, I'm sorry. Because I was, you know. I said, Harry, I'm sorry. He said, I know you are. He said, actually, I don't blame you at all. It wasn't your fault. I thought, whoa, what a relief. He said, it wasn't your fault. It was that David Beer's fault. He put you up to this. He made you do it. Well, I didn't want to blame David because I wanted to get a chance to preach again. So I said, no, it wasn't. I promise you, it wasn't David's fault. It wasn't David's fault. So Harry looked at me and he said, well, if it wasn't your fault and it wasn't David Beer's fault, whose fault was it? I just didn't know what to do or what to say. So I paused for a long time. He said, I asked you a question. Whose fault was it? I said, Harry, you don't really want me to tell you this. You're not going to like it. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't David's fault. It was Jesus' fault. I said, he turned the water into wine. It's not John's fault. He just wrote it down. It's not David's fault. It's certainly not my fault. It's Jesus' fault. And Harry stood there and he thought about this. He pondered it in silence. And then he said this. I'll never forget these words. He looked at me. He said, you're right. He said, it was Jesus' fault. But he was only young at the time. It's <laughs> honestly true. I kid you not, that is true without a word of exaggeration. Harry Court was an extraordinary person. But the point is this. 25 years have come and gone since then. 25 years, uh, that was kind of, must have been 1981, 1982. Uh, a long time has come and gone since then. And I've had a chance to explore this text and work with this text and work with John's gospel and have now reached the place where... I'm moving this so I can see the clock. Um, I've now reached... The, it doesn't mean anything, but at least I can see it. You know, kind of... <laughs> Trouble is, I can't remember what time I started. <laughs> what did it say when I started, Russ? Uh, it said 5-2. Yeah, okay, that's good. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> 5-2, right, okay. So, uh, the point is I have worked with this text a lot. I've written on this text, I've thought about it, I've studied it. And after 25, 26, 27 years, whatever it is, of working with John's Gospel and reading this text, I have come to the conclusion that the real meaning of what Jesus was doing is simply this. He wanted to say, the drinks are on me. The drinks are on me. The drinks are on the kingdom of God. And here is the problem for anyone who might be offended by that. 
The fact is, as I'm sure you know, that John's Gospel is, is arranged differently to the other three Gospels, which we call synoptic Gospels. That means they can be viewed together, they're kind of the same. John's Gospel is arranged theologically. Stories that crop up at the end of the other three Gospels happen near the beginning, like the cleansing of the temple or Jesus rubbishing the temple, turning over the tables in the, of, of the money changers. It happens at the end of the story in the other Gospels, but it happens right at the beginning in John's Gospel. John starts with what we call his prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we have seen God as he is. John is a theological thinker and writer. He's organized his material to make some explicit points. Why is this the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus does? Why is it that he goes to people who are half cut at a wedding, people who've had too much to drink, people who don't know Jesus is coming? We're told it's not even Jesus' time yet. He's not ready to start. Why is it that God goes to them? They've done nothing to come to him. They don't even know he's invited. They don't know who he is. There's no move towards God from them. Nothing on their part that they deserve anything. This is a lavish, outrageous, generous gift of grace. The drinks are on the kingdom of God. The seven signs of John's gospel are actually there to tell us exactly that. That God is generous, that God's on our side, that in Jesus there's new creation, new beginning, resurrection. We are changed, we are different people. There is new hope. Heaven is visiting earth and heaven is working with us. Mixed up, muddled up, confused on our good days, capable of great things. On our bad days, absolute failures. In our good half hours, capable of great things and great words and great thoughts. And then half an hour later, capable of cursing the people that we love the most. We save our worst behavior for indoors. And the truth is that the gospel is this. The, the gospel is the drinks are on the kingdom of God. The drinks are on Jesus. The kingdom of God is a party for people as screwed up and messed up as we are, and let's not forget it. And if it's true of us, that's the gospel for absolutely everyone. You get what you don't deserve. This world is not built on you get what you deserve. He didn't deserve that. It's built on you get what you don't deserve, which is heaven, which is grace. The drinks are on the kingdom of God. You can tell a lot about a person from their behavior. A lot about a person uh, from their behavior. Tom Wright says this, you reflect what you worship. If you worship clothes, you're always wearing the coolest stuff. If you worship cars, your car's very important to you. If you worship sex, if you worship religion, you can tell a lot about a person from the religion that they worship. Our core beliefs work their way out. They find their way out in our behavior. Our core beliefs find their way out in our expressions. One way or the other, our deeds and our deportment give away what we believe at core. Let me quote to you one Archbishop of Canterbury in the Second World War, his name was William Temple, great guy. He said this, let me quote it, I'll read it. The more distorted, therefore, the more distorted and misguided a person's belief in God and the more tenaciously and passionately they cling to it, the more damage they will do. We worship passion, 
Well, we love passion. Oh, he's passionate for God. She's passionate for God. We've got to be passionate. We've got to be enthusiastic. We've got to be out there. What William Temple was reminding us of is simply this. Passion is not enough. The more distorted and misguided or twisted a person's idea of God is, and the more tenaciously and passionately they cling to that belief, the more damage they will do along the way. Our core beliefs work their way out in our behavior. Example, Al-Qaeda. They should teach us all that passion for God is not the same thing as acting wisely. Passion for God, when detached from truth, becomes deadly. It works its, out, its way out in right-wing fundamentalist Christians who are willing to kill and write off others because they are right and others are wrong. Do you know I bumped into someone the other day who seriously asked me this. They said, do you think the Pope is a Christian? Do you know, I was just, what do you say to that kind of closed-mindedness? No, I think he's probably a Muslim, actually. Here is this Christ-like man. I don't know if you've ever read any of um, Pope Benedict's work, Ratzinger's work. He's a fantastic theologian. Doesn't mean I agree with everything he says, and I shouldn't think he's even heard of me, let alone agree with things I say. <laughs> Somebody asked me, last year at Spring Harvest, did I think the Archbishop of Canterbury was a Christian? Rome Williams, so He's walked with Christ. Do you see, our core beliefs work their way out in our behavior. And if we have a belief that says, my way's right and my God's right and anybody who's different to me must be wrong, that core belief works its way out in our deeds and our demeanor and our behavior. I went to a party. I was telling some people this the other night. I went to a party not, uh, some, oh, about a year or so ago. It was a wedding, actually. And I stood up and I had to take the wedding. And there was a woman at the back who didn't join in with anyone else. And she sat there dressed in black with this scowl on her face. And every time I looked at her, because I caught her eye from leading the service, she looked away. And at the reception, she looked away. She looked away. And I noticed she did it to everyone else. She didn't engage with anyone. At first, I thought she just didn't like me. But I realized she didn't like anyone. And then I realized she didn't like her. And at the end of the evening, there was a dance, a disco. And she came round the hall. And I saw her coming towards me. She kept looking at me. And every time I looked at her, she looked away. But then she came towards me. And she stood in front of me. She said, this opening words. I told some people this the other day. She said, I'm going to spoil your day. Not much of a greeting, really. <laughs> I said, you won't. I promise you, you won't. I could say that truthfully because it was half ten at night. So they are. <laughs> she said, um, I'm going to spoil your day. I said, sit down, let's talk. And she sat down and she proceeded to tell me over the next hour, probably, the story of horrendous abuse. She showed me the scars on her arms. She told me of her suicide attempt. She told me that no one wanted her. She told me she hated herself. She told me that she thought God hated her. She told me that she wished she was anyone else in the world except her. And I prayed for her. And she walked away. And here's the strange thing. As she walked away, I realized this. Now I knew the facts of her story, but I didn't know anything that I really didn't know the first time I looked across the church and saw her looking down. Her behavior gave away her beliefs. Our belief about ourselves governs the way we behave. 
Our belief governs the way we behave. You reflect what you worship, says Tom Wright. If you worship an angry God who wants to wrap everybody around the knuckles and tell everybody off and get them all into line because they're not like this and they're not like that and they ought to sort themselves out. If you want to be in our church, shape up or ship out. Act right, dress right, be quiet in communion. Don't laugh, don't giggle, don't smile at these moments of sacred activity. Do this, don't that, don't do that. Don't live like this, live like that. If we believe in a God like that, we will behave like that. That's why John's first sign is to announce that Jesus has come to people who don't deserve it. And he shouted, the drinks are on me. You're included. Grace reaches you before you respond. It's not make a bit of response and God steps towards you. No, the gospel is God steps towards you before you even know he's there. And he wraps you around and he announces there's a party and you're welcome and you're invited. That's what the gospel is all about. The problem is that we've got ourselves a bit confused. And here are some of the ways in which our behavior uh, works its way out. Our belief works its way out in our behavior. We've got ourselves confused between the sacred and the secular. That's why we mixed the music together tonight. We wanted the music to be both sacred and secular. Oh, it's a Christian band and they're doing Christians. Oh, they're doing secular songs now in a Christian worship. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. It's a sign of the end, 666. That's probably the name of the drummer. Do you see? My friend Martin Joseph, I don't know if any of you know Martin, people used to say to me, uh, I mean, I love Martin, people used to say to me, Martin's a Christian singer. And now, then they said, he's gone secular. (laughs) He used to be a Christian singer and now he's not a Christian singer. That's a Christian band, that's not a Christian band. This is a Christian album, that's not a Christian album. This is a, you know, he's in full-time work for the Lord, he's not. The truth is this, we have bought deeply into not biblical thought, but platonic thought. There was a Greek uh, philosopher called Plato. And Plato believed that everything to do with the body was dirty. And that after death we escaped the dirty, filthy body and our spirits went somewhere in a disembodied way. We've discovered this week, have we not, that the body rises from the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body because God does not see the physical as dirty. It's okay to talk about sex. It's okay to talk about sex during marriage, as well as we're always talking about sex before marriage. Oh, you mustn't do it. But nobody ever talks about sex while marriage is on. Look, even now you don't know whether to smile or not. You're going to... Ooh. Do you know, if we go too far, somebody might do it at Butlins. That would be terrible! (laughs) And I know some of you are offended, and let me tell you, I want to offend you. I deliberately want to offend you because you have swallowed a pile of Greek thought that has nothing to do with the Bible. It is platonic. It says that the the physical is dirty and we must shun sexuality and we must shun kind of all of this stuff. And we're supposed to be religious and keep ourselves to ourselves somewhere. And it's not biblical thinking. And it has robbed the world of the party it deserves. Because we got trapped in our buildings and we've not got out of our buildings to announce to our communities the drinks are on the kingdom of God's. 
And Christ longs for his church to leave its buildings and to realize we're all in full-time Christian work. To realize that worship isn't just the song leader. You know, let's have a bit of worship now. You know, well, you, you know, actually worship, according to the New Testament, is a life laid down and offered. And songs can be worship and they can just be filling in the time, can't they? Depending on our attitude. Because worship is an attitude of life. And you can build a wall or, or you can fit a kitchen. Or you can be a nurse or you can teach a class. Or you can be a lawyer or you can be an architect. Or you can serve people in a local shop. Or be a policeman. Or be an ambulance driver. You can, you can be a carer. You can serve your community. You can be a volunteer. And in the volunteering and the cleaning up and the shoveling dirt and the painting uh, window frames and the giving Giving and laying down of your life, you are worshipping God every single little bit as much as you are when you sing a song. Every single little bit. Our problem is this. Our problem is this. Not, not the secularization of the world. All oh, the world's gone and got secular. It is that we've kept the sacred indoors. It's the sacralization, if you like, of the church. We've become sacred and fearful. Whereas Jesus invaded the ordinary and he went to a bunch of drunk people and he said, the kingdom of God is here and the drinks are on the kingdom of God. It's time that we invaded the world. We need, you know, I'm involved in schools. Oasis is involved in schools. We, but not just Oasis, I don't mean we. We need quality teachers. We need people who are sharp, cutting edge, who do the best thinking in the country. Not to invade the banks all the time and earn as much cash as they can in the city, but to invade schools. We need the sharpest thinkers in medicine. We need the sharpest thinkers in the national health system. We need to recapture the caring professions in this country. There needs to be an invasion of the church in a caring way. We need to recapture the arts, not just to make albums for Christians, but to make albums that are world bestsellers. We need to create painters that are like Michelangelo, who understood something and he painted it. And for hundreds of years, people have looked up at the chapel, the Sistine Chapel roof, and they've seen God reaching out to touch, to touch Adam. And they've been inspired and changed and motivated and challenged. They've been redeemed because they've looked at that picture all because people wanted to invade the world to say the drinks are on the kingdom of gods that's what we're called to do we are called to say the drinks are on the kingdom of god to announce the kingdom of gods here you are called to be god's barman or god's barmaid that's who you are god's barman god's barmaid the drinks are here and they're on jesus that's what we're called to live out live out live out every single day of our lives in our communities. We are here to bring wine to all the people who don't have wine. We are here to be a community for the displaced, to create an environment for the unloved and the unlovely, for the refugee. We're here to create a family for the forgotten, a refuge for the homeless, a home for the isolated. We're here to be a friend for the lonely, a place where the outcasts in society can find life in all its fullness. We're here to be a voice for the enslaved, for the trafficked people of the world who tonight, who tonight would will give their bodies again and despise themselves for who they are. And no one, forgive me for saying this, gives a monkeys or a toss about it whilst we stand there 
we've got to get involved. We have to change the way we behave. We have to change the way we live. And please, please, you see, the problem is we do it so superficially sometimes, don't we? We kind of pray our prayers. But, you know, because what we believe works its way out in the way we behave, why have we retired from active involvement for this last hundred years? Why don't we have the Wilberforces? Where have the Florence Nightingales gone? I know we, there were thousands and thousands of people serving. But, you know, when thousands and thousands of people are serving in the churches, are running schools and clinics and health centres... The churches are the hubs of the community. They're launching football teams. You know, most of the premiership football teams grew out of church football teams because the church understood it was an outreach thing. But it's more than an outreach thing. It's a teaching thing. Remember, we learn in lots of different ways. It's time to get involved. But we've got to do it more than superficially. I plead, I plead with you, bring your brains Bring your expertise, bring your management skills, bring your professional skills, bring your learning skills, bring your teaching skills, bring your dancing skills, your painting skills, your legal skills, your process skills, bring the, your graphic skills, your engineering skills. Let's bring them and let's imagine what we've never imagined, that we are here to announce that the drinks are on the kingdom of God's. We're here to announce the drinks of Jesus. Do you know something? Is there more to this than this? There is more to this than this. The church, I believe, this is not a piece of rhetoric. I know I'm talking fast because I've run out of time, really. But, you know, the point is, this is not a piece of rhetoric. The church, I sincerely believe this. I believe this more passionately than I can possibly express to you. The church is the only hope for the world. The message of Jesus is the only hope for the world. It is. It is. It is the only hope for the world. It is the only hope for the world. But we have to do something more than we've been doing, don't we? Yeah? So let's think radically. We're bringing heaven to earth. We're announcing the drinks are on the kingdom of God. I got, uh, when Oasis began, we set up a hostel. And it's called number three because it's number three in the street. And it's for girls who, um, who've been abused sexually and emotionally and broken and beaten. And, and when we, it's run for 20-something years. And when we first started it, we took in, we used to take in these girls. And this girl came to live with us. I won't tell you her name. It was years ago anyway. She came to live with us. She'd been so badly beaten by her father and her stepfather and chained to a bed for six months before she came to us. Her excrement, when the social services found her, filled the bed. She'd been chained and fed there. She'd been abused sexually and physically for six months and never left the room. She came to us after a short stay somewhere else and she lived with us. For six months, she didn't even speak. She didn't even speak to any other, of, of the other girls. Then I wasn't there, but one morning she came down into the breakfast room that we have there and she sat at the table and she looked at the other girls there and she smiled and she said, morning that night all the girls in the hostel there are 16 of them live there and the staff threw a party they threw a party for her because she'd spoken they threw a party for her because her silence had ended because she was beginning to discover that the drinks are on the kingdom of God we've got to go we've got to get involved 
the drinks are on the kingdom of God. If you've been left out of this party and you know you're just existing, and let's be honest, our lives don't last long and you know you're just going to go on and on and on. And you know, you can, you can find substitutes for following God, can't you? You know, you, it can be a, can be, if you're really rich, it can be a yacht or else it would have to be a stereo or a flat screen telly. Do you know, it may be a sports car. It may be kind of a cottage in that. But we all know they're substitutes. Well, they're not fulfilling, are they? If you've been evading the invitation of Jesus to join the mission of God to transform the world, are you up for it? If God said to you, do you want to join my mission and transform the world, would you be up for it? Well, this is the invitation to the party. And if you've already got an invitation to the party and you're in God's kingdom, it's time for us to become his barmen and his barmaids and go to a world in need and say, the drinks are on Jesus. Let's party.